Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. And joining us today is my good friend, retired United States Air Force Lieutenant General Dave Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies. Uh, Dave, always an honor and pleasure having you on the program. Thanks so much for joining us. Well, likewise, Fago. Good to be back on. And before we get started, Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Northrop Grumman sponsors our weekly cyber report and our cyber coverage overall. General Atomics Aeronautical Systems sponsors our coverage of strategy. And HII sponsored our coverage of the recent uh, Navy League Sea Airspace Conference and Trade Show. And Bell sponsored our coverage of the Army Aviation Association of America's uh, annual meeting in Nashville, Tennessee. Uh, Dave, uh, thanks again for, for, for joining us. And uh, obviously a lot of uh, focus uh, on the land campaign and the Russian consolidation of forces in the eastern part of Ukraine, um, a sense that the focus now certainly is in Donbas, Luhansk, uh, Mariupol, uh, and making that land bridge between Russia and uh, Crimea. Although there is a sense that that's just phase one and that the Russians will try uh, to exert influence and power over to Odessa and even uh, north to Kiev and indeed over to the Polish border, although it doesn't look that way right now. Talk to us about what's going on um, both on our side, on the reconnaissance, uh, as well as uh, spaceborne assets that we are using. Um, and indeed, we have fighter aircraft uh, deployed as well, airlift also playing a role. Talk to us about sort of blue air at this point, NATO air, and how it's being employed on the border, both as a deterrent, but also as a powerful ISR, intelligence, surveillance, and reconnaissance uh, tool. I think what is really uh, getting people's attention in this particular conflict is the amazing impact of commercially available intelligence, uh, reconnaissance, and surveillance capabilities, uh, particularly those from space. I mean, that the Ukrainians are using, and frankly, anyone around the world with access to the internet and a credit card can gain access to. And what I'm talking about is both overhead imagery from satellites, uh, as well as electronic information. Uh, in the military, we often re refer to it as signals intelligence. Uh, people don't like to use that term in referring to commercially available electronic intelligence, but the fact of the matter is that's what it is. That kind of information is now available from commercial satellites. And so you know, five years ago, some of this information that's now easily accessible would be top secret special compartmented information, but no longer. So um, these kinds of capabilities have now proliferated um, and they're being used to good effect uh, by the Ukrainian uh, military in identifying just what the Russians are up to, where they're moving, um, how they're assembling their forces. Uh, and they roll this into their uh, nominal uh, intelligence structure and it's providing them uh, a good access. How are we using uh, air power, both the United States and its NATO allies and partners? Uh, because for example, there's a global hawk uh, 24 seven that's uh, operating over the Black Sea. You regularly see RC-135s, you see compass calls, you see U-2s, right? I mean, if you track flight uh, radar 24, uh, you see a lot of assets that are up there. 
Um, what are the kind of capabilities, layered capabilities, uh, are Cobra Harigian and his team, uh, Todd Walters and his team, as well as allies and partners uh, have forward? And indeed, right, there's, there is a massive air bridge of uh, weapons and capability that's going in to Poland, Romania, and elsewhere for transshipment on the ground. To give us sort of a sense of the scale and span of this uh, air operation. Well, without going into too much detail, I mean, you, you did a nice outline right there. I, I mean, NATO, um, USAFE, uh, the, the NATO nations have come together in a fashion, and particularly the air elements, in an integrated way, and they are sharing information with one another. Um, they are increased the uh, NATO air policing forces over the NATO nations uh, to indicate to the Russians that a, you know this is a very strongly unified and cohesive uh, set of nations operating under the command of a unified air component commander, Cobra Harigian. Um, and I would tell you that um, uh, they're, extra they're operating in an extraordinarily effective manner. Now, all that said, um, that's great. I think it helps in the deterrent aspect because I think most people that have looked at this situation would recognize that um, the, the Russians have no intent, or at least they may be reassessing uh, what their current position is, but you know, when they started their invasion, um, I don't believe, and I don't believe anyone else thought that or thinks that they would stop with Ukraine. Uh, and and so, uh, you know, in in, that, in analyzing what Putin's goal is, um, it's not simply Ukraine; it's to reestablish the Russian Empire, uh, and that means he has aspirations for. Um, you, you know, uh, particularly one can take a look at uh, perhaps his, his next endeavor were going to be uh, the Baltics, um, it, uh, Poland. I mean, we just don't know. But right. but let me let me let me kind of solidify remarks in the context that the uh, uh, air operations that uh, General Harigian has put together have been extraordinarily useful uh, and integrated. And I think that they, they demonstrate uh, to Russia that uh, uh, the, the NATO air operation is very much prepared to defend uh, the NATO countries. Now, I think that you know, there's more that can be done, but it, it, it depends on you know, the, the greater strategy that NATO is executing relative to what Putin does next. Uh, and, you know, that's that's up to conjecture, uh, but there's still a lot of things that uh, um, that can be done. Um, I want to get to that uh, in uh, just a minute. Um, let me ask you a quick, you're uh, a large proponent of fifth and uh, sixth generation air power, air power in general, but fifth and sixth generation air power in particular. And the F-22s and the F-35s, as we heard from testimony from General Todd Walters, has proven game-changing. How are F-35s, F-22s game-changing in this context uh, and actually an alliance-wide attribute, given so many of our allies and partners now have uh, those jets in, in inventory and using them? Well, um, it kind of gets to the crux or, or, the, or the next step of, of my answer to your previous question. Um, you know, 
if further measures need to be taken by NATO uh, to deter further Russian adventurism, uh, particularly uh, in the Baltics, uh, which frankly are quite susceptible to Russian aggression due to their proximity, um, what would send a real clear message to Putin uh, to stay out is deploying a unit of the world's most capable stealthy fighter, the F-22, to the Baltics and Romania. Um, and, and, and then uh, when the Russian foreign ministry makes another aggressive threat, additional units of F-35s could follow to Poland. Uh, and then, I mean, you know, this is a whole sequence of events that, that we might consider applying, but if any more threats emerge from Putin or his lackey Lavrov, um, then NATO could consider standing up a no-fly zone over the Baltics. Then there's the option to send stealthy B-2s to England. So any one or all of these actions would stand to help regain NATO's position in the deterrence equation. Um, so stealth, the, the, what's common to the three things that I just mentioned to you is low observability. Uh, and th that in and of itself is a deterrent element because first, I think Putin's aware of the extraordinarily poor performance of the Russian military uh, in their air forces and uh, in the face of F-22s, F-35s, and B-2s, um, uh, I, I think um, he understands uh, the power of those assets um, operating uh, independently or in conjunction with one another or in conjunction with uh, other NATO assets. And just to, to, to jump ahead, if you will, as more and more NATO nations get access to the F-35, now think of the complications that all of those nations operating together with advanced low observable aircraft pose to any kind of threat that um, Russia might consider in the future. And it's very, very, very powerful. Um, let me um, ask you about how the um, I, I want to get to um, the topic of Russian performance uh, in, a, in a minute. But what has impressed you about how the Ukraine Air Force uh, is prosecuting operations. You know, we've had some of their pilots note uh, how valuable it was to have that red flag or Top Gun uh, experience. From your standpoint, what are the things that are doing that are so impressive in terms of how they're using air power in this conflict? And what are some ways that um, their allies uh, and partners Right. What are the capabilities we need to furnish uh, them with that go beyond merely saying, hey, let's give you some more MiG-29s? I mean, that uh, obviously is, is a work that's still in progress. But what are, you know, as, as you look at the, the air picture, how they're using their assets? Well, I think what Ukraine lacks in numbers and technology um, makes up, it makes up for in, in skill and uh, teamwork. Um, and despite flying uh, older jets, fighter jets, Ukrainian pilots know how to work closely with their ground-based defenses like the S-300 surface-to-air missile units. And that integrated air defense is a tough nut to crack even for the Russians' um, uh, advanced air forces. 
Uh, and we'll talk about that here in a second. So I'll, I'll save that with respect to the Russian performance. Um, but the Ukrainians recognize uh, it, all the way up to the president. I mean, Zelensky has stated that his number one priority um, is air superiority and that they need a safe sky because whoever owns the sky will win. I mean, that has historically uh, been the case and it's the case here. So, so far they're holding the airspace on their own, um, but the Russians have been building up forces. One might say that they have in fact cracked the Ukrainian integrated air defenses in the Eastern Southeastern area. Um, uh, so um, they, that's why you hear from Zelensky over and over and over again, give us more fighter jets. We need attack aircraft, we need air defenses. So the central message is that Ukraine needs more and newer fighter jets to offset the attrition losses that they've experienced and to provide enough numbers to push the Russians back. And so, you know, their wish list items are more MiG-29s, surplus F-15Cs, F-16Cs, um, AMRAAM missiles, uh, plus modern area defense surface-to-air missile systems to do offset the declining war stocks of the uh, of the s-300s the challenge is convincing western politicians uh to supply this equipment uh and Absolutely. frankly the west's ongoing embargo on fighter aircraft is working for putin um, and it's an exquisite payoff from the russian psychological warfare and perception management campaign that's absolutely captured Western leadership and senior bureaucrats. Um, let me uh, pu push on that uh, a minute, right? There are those who make the argument that we, if we make anything available to the Ukrainians, right? I mean, there is this notion that that's World War III and it's a step too far. I think we're already in World War III and can't be, uh, can't self-deter against the guy who's hiding behind a nuclear shield and, and trying to push, uh, you know, push his agenda uh, forward. Um, but there are those who argue, look, give the Ukrainians the kind of equipment they know how to use. Give them MiG-29s if you're going to do anything. We are shipping 155 millimeter, 18 155 millimeter howitzer, uh, howitzers, uh, as well as 40,000 rounds of ammunition. Uh, but that's dissimilar to the stuff that they have in inventory now. How useful would it be to give the Ukrainians F-15Cs? or F-16s, and how reasonable is it to assume that they are very quickly going to be able to get the most out of those systems when their pilots simply don't have the hours in them, ultimately? Well, let me, uh, let, let me offer you some thoughts for consideration. First, I think it's very evident um, with respect to time. We've entered a sustainment phase of this conflict. This conflict's not gonna be over within days. It's not gonna be over within weeks. In fact, it's likely to go on for months and quite frankly, years. So there's plenty of time to train up Ukrainian pilots to fly F-16s and F-15s. Um, I don't know if your audience is aware, but the California's Air National Guard has been uh, flying in Ukraine, not, not recently, but you know, before this conflict over the past several years, they've had a relationship with the Ukrainian Air Force and Ukrainian pilots have flown in F-15s and the kind of pilots we're talking about here um, are extraordinarily competent 
and uh, 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 well-versed pilots. I mean, we're not talking about, you know, green pilots coming out of flight school that it normally would take a year to get up to speed to fly uh, a fighter like an F-16 or an F-15. We're talking about pilots that just need the basics on how to operate the weapon systems. They know how to fly the airplanes. I mean, so we're talking about uh, uh, probably six to eight weeks of training on the particular systems, couple of checkout flights, um, and these guys could be extraordinarily competent um, using F-15s or F-16s. Um, not to mention, I mean, it's a, the, the MiG-29s should be a no-brainer in terms of shifting them. Now, what happened was, unfortunately, it became a diplomatic tussle between our Secretary of State, um, who made some public pronouncements without consulting the polls. The polls then responded. It got into the media. But with that, we need to push to the past. Those aircraft need to be shifted over uh, just simply if they're used for spares to allow the Ukrainians to operate the jets that they have. But this is not some gigantic effort that's going to take years to get these pilots up to speed. Um, the Ukrainian Air Force could very competently transition uh, to these kind of aircraft uh, in, in, in just a, a, a matter of months, if even that long. Uh, now, with respect to those that say, well, you know, we're, we're shifting, we're giving them uh, weapons that they can use. You mentioned 18 howitzers. Are you kidding me? 18 frappin' howitzers? 11 1970 air uh, uh, helicopters. You know, th this is a sham. Th this is this is spin trying to make people think that um, we're actually giving them something that can be useful. Um, th they are, but certainly not in the quantities required to offset an invasion of 150,000 Russians. Um, let's get serious here, folks. Uh, and again, I mean, that was uh, one of the criticisms of 100 switchblades, several thousand switchblades would be good, although uh, army officials have said that they don't have as many uh, of those in inventory, although Lloyd Austin did meet with um, senior U.S. defense executives to, uh, you know, increase uh, production volume and, and put their scientific acumen to try to help the Ukrainians solve some of the problems they have. Let me ask you about the Russian capability and what either amazes you or baffles you uh, ab about it. Uh, yeah. You were uh, in an early cadre of F-15 uh, drivers. I think you began your career in in, in Europe. Um, the Moskva was, was lost. Um, that was such a major impact that even uh, Russian government uh, TV hosts, as we heard from Sam Bendet uh, of the Center for Naval Analyses yesterday said, you know, is, is getting people to go, what the heck was was that about? From your standpoint, what's what strikes you as, you know, we thought the Russians were competent, at least, uh, and and that they had operational experience, uh, whether it was in in Georgia, whether it was in Crimea, whether it was in Syria, uh, and and elsewhere. What what is it that stuns you about how the Russians are performing here? Well, that's a that's a that's a lot of ground to cover. Um, before I comment on the Air Force's performance. Let's just talk for a minute about the impact of the, the sinking of the Moskva. Um, uh, frankly, I, you know, I've, I've read the proclamations by uh, analysts and, and some of them are saying it doesn't make any difference. 
um, in, in the total uh, outcome. I would disagree with them. I think the uh, sinking of the Moskva is a significant action that set back Russian plans for any amphibious assault on Odessa. Uh, Odessa. Uh, I mean, this is due to a couple of factors. First, an amphibious assault is a very complex undertaking, and losing the ship that's most capable of command and control of any such attempt is a big blow all by itself, not to mention the naval command staff that was on board. Uh, you, you know, people are forgetting that, you know, there are around 500 people on board that ship. And, uh, you know, all reports indicate that, you know, around 400 or more were lost. Um, so that that's nothing to sneeze at. Um, second, the fact that the Moskva had several uh, surface-to-air missile systems on it that could protect any Russian amphibious assault from Ukrainian air attacks is now lost along with that capability. So that further reduces the probability of, of uh, any such assault. And then it, from a big picture perspective, finally, the fact that Ukrainians' anti-ship cruise missiles were so effective against the Russians' largest warship in the Black Sea um, is real-world evidence of what could happen to any of Russia's other warships if they get in range of the Ukrainians' anti-ship cruise missiles. Uh, and I, I think you're aware many uh, many Russian ships have already pulled back. So all of this is good news for Ukraine um, as it gives Russia another black eye. And I think it significantly reduces the probability of any Russian amphibious assault. Um, so um, pretty significant event there. Now, with respect to the Russian Air Force's overall, I'll call it interesting showing, uh, and quite frankly, poor showing. Boy, that's that's as diplomatic as I've ever heard you be, by the way. <laughs> well, you just heard me correct that to poor showing. I mean, you, you know, people have been very surprised. Although I don't want to denigrate the potential impact if they get their act together. But right. here's a couple of the reasons why I don't think they're going to get their act together. Um, uh, first, the lack of experience on the part of the Russian Air Force pilots in the leadership. I mean, you, you, in your introduction, you talked about, you know, they don't go to red flags. They don't do large force exercises with dissimilar aircraft training. Um, and, and that's a huge plus when it comes to U.S. and allied uh, airmen. Uh, the second part that strikes me is the poor leadership and absence of planning by the Russian military. Now, I say Russian military writ large uh, because apparently there are Russian army generals that were or, in or are in charge of the Russian operations to include air operations, you know, and that's a recipe for disaster because ground officers are simply incapable of understanding how to capitalize, I should say most of them. There, there are a couple of exceptions out there. Schwarzkopf is a case in point where he actually understood the advantages of the use of air power and capitalized on that. Uh, to allow us to succeed to the degree that we did in Operation Desert Storm. But I digress. Most Army officers don't have that kind of strategic insight. And that's been evident in the Russian operations. And then the third one that kind of strikes me is the either lack of, or I should really say lack of, and poor performance of the weapons used by the Russian Air Force. I mean, 
I dare say probably only, this is a guesstimate, but 40% of what they've released in terms of either missiles or bombs have hit their target uh, or detonated. So all of these combined are a recipe for less than optimal Russian air operations and maybe, well, it's one part of the, of the reason for the continued competition between the Ukrainian and Russian air forces for air superiority over Ukraine. Neither side has it right now. Um, part of it is the Russians' poor performance. The other part is the Ukrainians' exceptional performance. And part of that is because of their exposure to U.S. training tactics and procedures um, over the last several years. And so what we need to do is capitalize on that and reinforce it uh, by providing uh, the, the, the systems re that are required to help Ukraine. Um, I should uh, just a quick word from our sponsors. GM Defense sponsors our technology coverage and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of uh, joint all domain command and control. And to underscore that point, Dave, I would say, right, there are backfire bombers that are dropping dumb bombs uh, on just about anything they can they can get their hands on. So this isn't exactly a precision. There is some precision uh, in terms of some of these strikes, but some of the other strikes are, are literally supersonic bombers dumping iron bombs uh, on people, as as news reports have pointed out uh, over over the past several weeks. Um, let me ask you very quickly about lessons from this conflict, and I want to do a separate program uh, and have you be part of that uh, as well. But in in the five minute version. What are some of the things that we need to reconsider? And what are the lessons from this that can be carried on to how we need to think about the Chinese? Because the Russians at least have had operational experience. Chinese have not had a lot of operational experience over the last several decades. What are some of the assumptions we need to rethink uh, about all forms of war fighting as we've been planning them? And how much of what we see here needs to carry on about how we think about conflict with the Chinese. I mean, as you said, uh, higher up in the program, right, there is a enormous amount of information that would be, would have once fallen into the realm of highly classified real-time space-borne and electromagnetic intelligence that is available to anybody, as you said, with a credit card. That cuts both ways. Give, give us your sense on sort of the lessons and how many of these lessons need to shape how we're preparing uh, against the Chinese? Well, that's about a four hour long uh, response. And I'm happy so, to give you that in, in half an yeah. hour block. Yeah, well, let, let, me, let me talk- Give us the five minute teaser version. Well, everyone is focused on operational and tactical level issues. Um, let me share with you uh, a perspective um, from a strategic level. Uh, what has unfolded here and what's at play is that the capacity of the United States of America to deter conflict has significantly eroded over the past 30 years. And that's part of why Putin took the actions that he has. He sensed weakness on the part of the United States and he took advantage of that weakness. Um, and, and so I, I would tell you sanctions didn't deter Putin. They won't change his military calculus any one bit. Unity among European nations with relatively weak defenses didn't deter Putin. It's only US military strength that would have deterred his aggression. 
And we don't have that capacity today. That's very clear and was made evident by the fact that he conducted this invasion in the first place. So the lesson is the Russians' actions should be a wake-up call to rebuild the U.S. military. Today, we're at half the strength that we were during Desert Storm, and we've declined from the ability to fight two major regional conflicts at that time to only one today. So only by achieving the degree of strength necessary to defeat both Chinese aggression in Asia and Russian aggression in Europe in near simultaneous timeframes can we deter either of these situations from occurring. That needs to be the baseline of a new defense strategy, not some new buzzword like integrated deterrence, which has already been proven as a failure in deterring Russian aggression. Um, so uh, that's doubtful. Um, I'm just telling you, you, you wanted a lesson. That's my big takeaway here. Um, uh, but we need to uh, recognize and wake up to the reality that what's happened in Ukraine should shock the United States and create the conditions to rebuild our military to be able to conduct two major regional conflicts simultaneously. Now, with respect to China, they're already acting. You know what they're doing? They're already increasing the number of nuclear weapons and delivery systems beyond what they had planned prior to the beginning of this operation. Uh, and I, I think it's quite evident um, uh, while they're doing that, uh, or why they're doing that, uh, because unfortunately the, the message that has been uh, sent uh, is that um, the actions of the administration uh, in deferring to Putin for fear of his use of nuclear weapons has sent a message to every potential adversary of the United States that they should acquire uh, nuclear weapons, and if they have them, more as rapidly as possible. Uh, because U.S. submission to nuclear, Russian nuclear threats is encouraging nuclear proliferation. It's not discouraging it. So th th these are enormous uh, implications at a strategic level that have to be addressed and I look forward to digging into this in more detail with you in some future time. Um, last uh, last question. We've got about a minute. Um, are we? Do you think that we need to more fundamentally address both on the air power side, land power, sea power, um, the programs we're prosecuting? I mean, if you get into a newer generation of loitering munitions, for example, that changes the ball game, right? It changes the kind of air platforms you're going to need. If you are right, I mean, how there are questions about uh, attack helicopters, uh, for example, although army aviation officials have said our tactics are very different than what the Russians, how the Russians would perform. The Russians are using tanks without infantry, uh, right? Just like the Israelis did in the Yom Kippur war, which is uh, which makes it all problematic, right? I mean, Sagers were a challenge then. They were the javelin of the day. How, how are the, what are the things that you think we need to reconsider in the wake of this operation? Because, or is this operator error more than platform mismatch from your standpoint? No, I think, I, I think you raised some excellent questions. I mean, there are people that already talked about, look, um, the sinking of the Moskva indicates that surface ships have essentially seen their day. I saw something today that um, uh, from uh, a, a uh, 
established defense analyst who said, you know, sorry, Navy, but, you know, your aircraft carriers are over and done with um, uh, because they, they can be overwhelmed with uh, Chinese missiles in any kind of an attack. Um, helicopters, quite frankly, this should not be a wake up to the uh, vulnerability of helicopters. Every time the United States has attempted any major use of helicopters over the last 30 years, they've gotten them all shot up, shot down, and rendered completely ineffective. So I, I think we need to divorce ourselves from uh, some of the uh, 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 Army's uh, enthusiasm for helicopters. They have a place, don't get me wrong, uh, but not in, in deep attack, okay? Uh, it, when it comes to tanks, uh, the proof's in the pudding. Um, you, you know, they're, they're, they're wonderful targets, uh, but they've been rendered ineffective from the air. I mean, we've proven this in, in, in Desert Storm from air attack, and you've seen how effective javelins have been from a dispersed and well-equipped uh, infantry. So you, you raise some very interesting questions, but the one thing that hasn't changed is the importance of securing the skies and owning the skies uh, to be able to deliver uh, uh, weapons from an attack perspective and to be able to defend uh, from ability to prevent an adversary from doing the same thing, which just re-emphasizes the importance of low observability. Now, unfortunately, the United States Air Force has a plan to divest itself of more than a thousand airplanes over the next five years and accumulating virtually nothing to be able to replace them. We need to increase the procurement of our only uh, uh, low observable platform uh, to a degree uh, that uh, hopefully will help us re replenish some of these divestitures and that's the f-35 instead of buying 33 a year we ought to be buying 80 to 100 a year and the sooner we do that the better off we'll be uh at at the end of the day some of this uh dave is very reminiscent of uh the royal air force right coming to the united states uh in may 1940 and approaching aircraft manufacturers and saying hey you know with if, if we end up at war um with germany uh and once it heats up we're going to need a lot more assets and led to the birth of the p-51 for example um and and nobody's ever said we need less control of the sky you know i'm sure that there were people who were getting stones and dead carcasses lobbed at them by the romans wondering wow if there was any way to stop this in about 15 seconds um how do we need to pursue air defense right i mean if you look at it the united states is better than any other country uh, at this game and yet we have very very few patriot batteries and they're becoming more and more in demand right slovakia shifted over its s300s in order you know and asking the united states to support us we don't have enough for europe at this point much less have enough for the pacific um, do we need to have a renewed focus on air and missile defense? And if so, what kind of focus? 30 the, seconds. The short answer is absolutely yes. The United States Army, instead of building plans uh, to put together hypersonic missiles at 55 to $60 million a shot, um, they ought to focus on increasing uh, the capabilities to conduct both air-based air defense and defense of uh, critical assets. That there's another big piece in this too, and that's reopening the focus on the importance of strategic missile defense uh, against potential uses of intercontinental and uh, tactical ballistic missiles. Because we always presumed part of the deterrence equation is that we were operating with rational actors. 
How do you defend against an irrational actor, which many people have postulated that Putin is slipping into a role of? And the only answer is strategic missile defense. Dave Deptula, always an honor and pleasure having you on the show. Uh, and for all of our uh, auto, uh, Army uh, audience, uh, we are going to have some Army voices on the program soon. We had uh, Major General Wally Rugan on uh, last week, a uh, week before last, to talk to us a little bit about the Army aviation portfolio. And certainly we'll have more. Dave, thanks very, very much. And I'm uh, very eager to have you uh, join us uh, on a panel uh, to discuss uh, some of the broader lessons and, and how we shake it all out. Thanks so very much. You bet. See you, Vago. And now a word from our sponsor, retired United States Army Major General Jeff Schlosser, who is the Executive Vice President for Strategic Pursuits at Bell. We've been building creative and innovative aircraft, next generation types of capabilities for almost nine decades. Bell is the company that can deliver that. Thanks very much, sir. And thanks to all of you for listening. Please follow our daily podcasts and visit the Defense and Aerospace Report website to subscribe to our weekly newsletter. Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook at Defense and Aerospace Report, and check us out on LinkedIn. And stay tuned for our weekly cyber report sponsored by Northrop Grumman. Thanks again to Bell for their generous sponsorship, and we'll see you again tomorrow.